We'll be reading to verse 14, starting in verse 1. Judge not that you be not judged, for with the judgment you pronounce you will be judged, and with the measure you use it will be measured to you. Why do you see the speck that is in your brother's eye, but do not notice the log that is in your own eye? Or how can you say to your brother, let me take the speck out of your eye, when there is a, the log in your own eye? You hypocrite, first take the log out of your own eye, and then you will see clearly to take the speck out of your brother's eye. Don't give dogs what is holy, and do not throw your pearls before pigs, lest they trample them underfoot and turn to attack you. Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and it will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives, and the one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, it will be opened. Or which one of you, if his son asks him for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, will give him a serpent? If you then, if you then who are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father, who is in heaven, give good things to those who ask him? So whatever you wish that others would do to you, do also to them, for this is the law and the prophets. Enter by the narrow gate, for the gate is wide and the way is easy, that leads, that leads to destruction, and those who enter by it are many. For the gate is narrow and the way is hard that leads to life, and those who find it are few. Well, good morning. As we come before the word this morning, I'd like to read a few passages of scripture that perhaps will set the table for the text. I'd like to at least get you to be thinking foundationally in this direction as we prepare for Matthew 7, 1 through 6. And I believe even these scriptures that I'm going to read are, are foundational not only for Matthew 7, 1 through 6. They are foundational for perhaps many, if not all, of the scriptures that we would come to and approach. I believe an understanding, a reminder, perhaps this morning in this arena of the fear of the Lord. And how important it is that we fear the Lord. The Proverbs are filled with instruction here on the fear of the Lord. Proverbs 9, verse 10. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of what? Wisdom. Yeah, wisdom. And the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. Proverbs 1, verse 9. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of knowledge. But fools despise wisdom and instruction. Proverbs 14, 26. In the fear of the Lord is strong confidence. And his children will have a place of refuge. The very next verse, Proverbs 14, 27. The fear of the Lord is a fountain of life. To turn one away from the snares of death. Proverbs 8, in that passage where wisdom is personified. Wisdom personified in Proverbs 8, 13. The fear of the Lord is to hate evil. Pride and arrogance... And the evil way and the perverse mouth I hate. Why spend time seeking the scriptures about the fear of the Lord? What does this have to do with our text this morning? 
Church, I believe this. I believe that the fear of the Lord is the foundation for our very lives. Foundation for how we operate as Christians in this world. If you do not fear the Lord God, your words, your actions, your decision making, your thoughts, all of these things will be impacted not by what God thinks, but by whatever you might think in a given situation. If you do not carry with you the fear of the Lord God in all you do, if you do not consider Him as you begin to respond, perhaps, to someone's angry words, if you do not contemplate God before making a decision to buy that new house, if you fail to take counsel in your prayer closet when confronted with a real trial staring you in the face, you're making a statement when you choose to do those things. You are simply saying that you are content with walking in your own power in your own resources, or as the Bible would say, in the flesh. Content with what you can do to affect the situation before you. In light of that, I would ask a question. How's that working out for you today? Have you been operating as though you are a stranger to God? Have you been operating that way? I'm not saying what you hold to and what you believe. I'm saying, have you been operating as though you were a stranger? Has there been any evidence of late that you are engaged in a living, vibrant relationship with the Lord God through His Son, Jesus Christ? I would want you to know, church, that to say that you are in Christ and to live contrary to that. The Bible says that you are a liar and the truth is not in you. He who says he abides in him, that's Christ. He who says that ought himself also to walk in that, to walk as Christ walked. 1 John 2, 6. I bring this up in light of the text today. These words here, Matthew 7, 1 through 6, they're difficult words. They pose a challenge, not only to the listener of the day when Jesus is teaching and preaching this sermon on the mount. These words also are a challenge to you, myself included, all of us in this building. See, as you consider the text for today, which highlights subject matters like judgmentalism, speaks of importance of discerning. I want to point out to you the foundation we build on, church, is Christ. Because you see, to speak to you only of judgmentalism and discernment without speaking of your position in Christ, without reminding you of the one who bought you, the one who purchased you, the one who redeemed you. And remember, maybe we need a reminder. Remember, you were dead. That's what Ephesians 2, 1 says. 
God made you alive. He made you alive. I do believe the appropriate place to begin is with the Lord God. Always is, right? It's always the appropriate place to begin. To look at and to be reminded, stirred of what he has done, what he has accomplished, what he has completed in Christ. You see, any building we participate in together as the body of Christ, it must be carried out. It must be built on the solid foundation of Christ. In fact, Paul says that in Corinthians 3.11, for no other foundation can anyone lay than that which is already laid, which is Jesus Christ. That's the foundation, church, upon which we build. If you are in Christ, I would even pose the question, why would you desire to build any differently? Look at the text. Matthew 7, 1 and 2. Judge not that you be not judged. For with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. There's some words that are repeated here. This judge, judged, measure, measured. Okay? Contextually, I need to ask the question up front. Is there anyone in the text, in, in particular, who had been exhibiting some form of judgmentalism, some judgmental spirit? Anyone here in the text and surrounding context that you know of as Jesus has been in teaching and preaching... Anyone that you're aware of who's been lording it over others. I don't believe you have to think and consider that too long before you come up with the Pharisees and the scribes. And yet I wonder, well, we're probably quick to put the Pharisees and scribes right there as the answer to the question. Is the text... Simply an acknowledgement of the sins of the Pharisees and the scribes. Is that what Jesus is, is that all he's aiming at here, targeting? Is he teaching the Sermon on the Mount to cast his own judgment? <laughs> oh, by the way, his judgment is just. His judgment is quite perfect. So when Jesus is found judging someone, some of these things we're talking about right here, <laughs> the, the rule here for Jesus is, is, is quite, quite different because we see in, in John 5, he's talking about the judgment has been given to him. The Father has given him all judgment. Is he, here in Matthew 7, is he just... Is he, is he piling it up on these guys for all the wrong that they've done? What's his point in bringing the Pharisees and the scribes into the picture? Remember, Matthew chapter 5. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. You've heard that it was said, but I tell you. Unless your righteousness exceeds, surpasses that of the scribes and the Pharisees, you cannot enter the kingdom of heaven. Matthew chapter 5, verse 20. Matthew 7, 1 and 2 speaks of not judging others. But in what way? In what way? 
What does Jesus want to teach you on this subject? It's prudent, I believe, to put this forward in light of the text. If, if the body of Christ is to be the body of Christ, it's high time to stop bickering with one another. It's time to stop complaining. It's time to stop grumbling. The spirit of judgmentalism is alive. Did you know that it's alive among the body of Christ universal? Anybody know that this morning? And all the while, the world's standing there and looking at it. Saying, I told you so. Words get spoken that put one church down. Words get communicated about how they're doing church, how they're practicing, functioning as a church. Words get spoken about how you just don't agree with it. I just don't agree with it. Lively conversation centered around whether church partakes weekly of the Lord's Supper, monthly, quarterly. What's their worshiping song like? That's not what I prefer. Really. I just want to go to a place where I can worship. Like I sing some songs that I like. What? These are the kinds of things. We can come up with a whole list. You can come up with a whole list of things. Petty arguments. Petty things put forward. In the text in Matthew 7, the word judge can have in mind a couple different definitions, if you will, depending upon the particular use and context and what have you. It can have in mind the idea to discern, okay? It can also have in mind to judge judicially, uh, judicially, to judge someone. It can, it can have in mind to be judgmental. It can have in mind to condemn, and that condemning could be judicially or otherwise, Okay, all of these various shades of meaning this word puts forth. As you read Matthew 7, I believe the context steers toward the idea of being judgmental or the idea of condemning and what we would say toward another brother. To exhibit some critical spirit toward someone else. Judge not, condemn not, that you be not judged. You know, as I was thinking about this, I, I got to, I was reminded of how this, this verse, it seems to get pronounced, and, and, and a lot of people don't even recognize perhaps that it's Matthew 7, verse 1. When someone is displeased with something that is spoken to them, someone comes to them and says something about what's going on in their life, this verse or a form of this verse seems to get put forward. Any kind of rebuke, any kind of exhortation, exposing deeds of darkness, the voice that comes forward is, stop judging me. You ever heard that? Quit it. Stop judging me. Who are you to judge me? 
it might seem as though the world has a trump card of sorts with this verse. Stop placing judgment on me. And yet I ask, what is this verse teaching? What is this verse teaching? Is it saying that under no circumstance, under no situation whatsoever, are you to cast any judgment towards someone else? Is that what Jesus is teaching? Is, is Jesus here in Matthew 7, is he instituting some kind of gag rule for those that follow him? Right? Don't ever say anything to anyone when you observe them going in the wrong direction. When you see them participating in deeds of darkness. When you see them wandering in the paths with the wicked. Is that what Jesus is advocating here? Church, I don't believe so. The world, though, is not the only group holding up Matthew 7, verse 1, as a protective device. (laughs) Isn't it instructive for us right here to see that Jesus is also sounding an alarm to his church... To wake up. How many in the church are operating in the very same way as the world? Here. When a word is brought to your attention, I'll be specific. When a word is brought to your attention from the scripture, is your first response defense? You may not verbalize it, but you counter with that same familiar line, stop judging me. You may not say it that way. You may not verbalize anything, but you may be thinking it. You see, this could be taken to mean, as you look at 7.1 and 7.2, that the reason you're not to judge another is to keep it from happening to you on your end. In other words, don't judge so that it won't happen to you. Well, I believe there is some truth, no doubt, to the things that we do, we would want to do. We'll get to some of this later in Matthew 7. Why we would do certain things. Is, is, is it primary? Is it a priority that you would not judge someone just so that someone might not judge you? Is that what Jesus, is that all Jesus is after? Verse 2 elaborates verse 1 and says that with the judgment you judge, you will be judged. And with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. What you see here in the text is a warning. Take heed how you judge. Because you too are going to be judged. And with the measure you use, the measure, it's a standard, it's a rule. The measure that you use. What is the measure you use? What is the standard that you use to judge someone? It's important that you know because you too, according to the text, will be measured in that same way. As you consider this, I'd like to ask a question. Does it matter where the warning comes from? There's a warning put forth here. Does it matter where the warning comes from? You know... I was thinking about driving on the interstate. I I, I log a lot of miles this time of year and thinking about driving on the interstate. You know, if if I'm driving along the interstate and I notice all the cars are going 55 to 60 mile an hour, which according to that sign on the side of the road is how fast we're supposed to be going. 55 is the speed limit. 
I see all those cars going in the speed limit. But I think to myself, you know what? I like to go fast. And so I go 65, 70, 75, and I'm just passing up these cars. I'm having quite fun, a lot of fun. Zigging and zagging, moving in and out. And you head around the bend and guess who's waiting? Mr. Policeman has his radar. And he's waiting right around the corner. You know, you may not heed the warning of the other cars who are going the speed limit. But as soon as you see that policeman, what tends to happen is one of two things. Either you immediately let off the gas and try and coast because you see, if we're intelligent, we come to understand that, you know, if I hit my brake, that proves my guilt. So I let off the gas and try and coast and hope my car slows down quick enough. Or you do hit your brake because you realize you're going way too fast. I bring that up because, you know, Depending upon who is giving and issuing the warning. Those other cars didn't keep you from slowing down. But that policeman did. You see in the text, I see a warning that's being issued. And if we're not careful, one of the things that we'll come to see in this text, and all we'll leave with is this warning coming from some other person. Or this don't judge because someone else might judge you in the very same way. If we leave, and that's all we think the text is saying, I believe we're missing a very significant part of the text. We need to understand who's issuing the warning this morning. Jesus himself is putting forward the warning. When we read, judge not, that you be not judged. Condemn not, that you be not condemned. Who is the only one? Who is... Who is the one who is, as the scripture says, the righteous judge? The judge overall. It's God himself. Are we concerned about walking rightly from his word because of the warning put forth by God himself? The fear of the Lord. Or are we simply doing or not doing something because of what we would want or not want someone to do to us. Do you see the difference? There's a big difference. Because on the one hand, we're just walking around and we're just trying to please people. We're doing it just so that people would be nice to us. We'll talk more about that in just a second. If the warning behind do not judge is issued by God himself, How then does that affect your response? Look at verse 2. For with what judgment you judge, you will be judged by God. Thinking about that, by God, not not by man. While it's true, no doubt man may do that. But let's think, let's think bigger picture here. Let's think more priority. Let's think more purpose. God is the one overseeing all of this. With the measure you use, it will be measured back to you. By whom? By God. See, doesn't it increase 
the words here in 1 and 2 to another level when we see it more than just man. <laughs> we're trying to impress man. We're doing these things to, to keep from something happening from another person. Church, we need to hear this. We, we are not to be judgmental toward others. But the reason why is important. The reason why is important. It's not just to gain favor, favor with other men. That's not why, primarily. Hoping that if I just treat them nicely, then they'll treat me nicely. So, think about how that gets worked out. So then we all become nice toward one another. The church then is infected with one, one, one gentleman I heard years ago said came up with this term, and it fits right here. The church then gets infected with this what's known as terminal niceness. Everyone walking around and smiling and pretending that things are going great when all the while the condition of the body is in a terminal state. Decay has set in. Masks have been donned. We'll talk more about that here in just a moment. People come and go, and they're not changed. And I wonder, do they desire to change? More pointedly, do you desire to change? Or has arriving on the scene on Sunday morning been an exercise in religion? I speak this not to the adults only, but to the young people as well. Has arriving on Sunday simply been an exercise in religion? Jesus is addressing external religion throughout this sermon in Matthew 5, 6, and 7, church. And he adamantly speaks out against it. Verse 2 speaks of the measure you use to judge. What's the measure? by which you judge another. Let, let me put forward two scriptures here and they tie into to what we've talked about in Matthew 5 and 6. In Matthew 5, we see Jesus in Matthew 5, 7. He says, blessed are the merciful, for they shall obtain mercy. Mercy. And in Matthew chapter 6, 14 and 15, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive your trespasses. Mercy and justice. With the measure you use, what's the measure you use? Mercy. Justice. In fact, you know what? It's interesting to point out one of the parallel passages here in, Luke, in Luke's Gospel, chapter uh, 6 and 37. You know, we were talking about thinking about this warning that's issued here in Matthew 7, 1. Judge not, that you be not judged. Thinking about it from the perspective of God being the one issuing the warning. Matthew, or excuse me, Luke chapter 6, 37 and 38. Jesus says, judge not and you shall not be judged. Condemn not and you shall not be condemned. Forgive and you will be forgiven. Who's the only one that can truly forgive you? It's not man, church. It's God through Jesus Christ. Give and it will be given to you. Mercy. And justice. One writer said the measure we use of these two, mercy and justice, will be applied to us. I'm also reminded of what we're to be about as a church. Corinthians, that wonderful love passage. Corinthians 13. 
It hopes all things. It bears all things. It believes all things. You see, this concept, this definition given to us in the Word about what love is, what charity is. Church, we need to keep that in mind as we are interacting with one another in the body. Above all, put on love. Right? Matthew 7, 1 and 2 speaks to an attitude. There's an attitude issue being addressed here. A critical spirit toward others. Let let us not think here that the text is advocating an absence of sin in the lives of others. In other words, don't judge someone else. Sin's not really happening. No, sin's happening. It's just we need to be careful and understand how we address it. (laughs) Okay? That's, That's one of the things he's talking about here. In fact, writer says these verses attack judgmental attitudes, but they do not deny that real sins may well be present. So then, how do you address these very real sins that may be present? Well, I believe verses 3, 4, and 5 give us instruction on how to address and how not to address these real sins that, ve- that very well may be present in the lives of others. Let's look at 3, 4, and 5. And why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? But do not consider the plank in your own eye. Or how can you say to your brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. And look, a plank is in your own eye. Hypocrite. First remove the plank from your own eye, and then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Notice the and at the beginning, connecting 1 and 2 with 3, 4, and 5. Okay? It's a continuation of thought here as Jesus is teaching. Matthew 7, verse 3. And why do you look? Why do you look at the speck in your brother's eye? Speck. Some... Some little thing, some, some twig, some little piece of, you know, just this, you think of a speck, something little, a plank, something big. Hey, let's not, let's not make this more difficult than what it needs to be. A speck and a plank. Or King James has that, what, moat and beam, right? Speck and plank, I, I tend to relate a little bit better to speck and plank. But whatever it may be, we need to understand that what's put forward by Jesus is... These two things are contrast between the two. All right? It's it's almost... uh, would be a hyperbole. It's exaggerated to teach a point. How we do this. Conversely, how we are not to do this. Why... Are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye? Looking. Notice it's look. Verse 3, it's simply a look toward another. All right? This is, he's putting forward very clear, obvious teaching here on this. Why are you looking at the speck in your brother's eye, but do not consider, do not consider the plank in your own eye? And, and in other words, we need to remember here, he's already issued the command to judge not. To stop with the judgmental attitude, the belittling, the lording it over, the condemning spirit toward one another. Jesus is calling your attention to something that might very well be painful for you and for me. He's pointing you to address the primary in order that you might address the secondary. (laughs) 
Church, how often do you consider the plank in your own eye? I believe in light of what this text is saying, it's important, it would be a very good exercise for us today and in the days ahead to be considering what that plank might be in our own eye. How often do you consider the sin that so easily entangles? Isn't it true that there are times when you don't see the sins in your life? And yet, on you go, pointing out to others the speck in their eye. Some people seem to have a chronic case of this. Their lives revolve around solely looking at their brother for the purpose of removing their speck. And once they've removed their speck, they move on and they try to find another brother. And they just keep moving around, trying to find a speck. Now, all the while, they have this giant, huge, big, obvious plank in their own eye. Let me insert this as well. Jesus is not saying that you need to clean yourself up to a state of perfection before then you are allowed to speak into someone's life. Guess what? If that were the case... There would never be a time when you would speak up to your brother. Ever. Thinking even more importantly, more significantly, if that's the way God judged us, isn't it wonderful to know that in Romans, Paul's writing and he says, you know what, God didn't wait until you and I were all cleaned up before he decided to send Jesus. But God demonstrated his own unique love toward us. And now, what, what's that phrase say? While we were yet sinners, Christ died for us. We didn't have our act together. And yet God, in his rich mercy, his grace, his love, sent Jesus. Praise the Lord for that. So what's Jesus advocating here? While it is true that you may be blind to some of the sins in your own life, it's also true you may be self-deceptive in this area. You, you, may, here, you may not want to see it. You know the plank is present, but you carry on as though it's absent. That phrase in verse 3 stuck out. Three words. Consider the plank. <laughs> Maybe you just need to write that down. Consider the plank. I was just chewing on that one. Consider the plank. What a great reminder before we speak to another brother about a speck. Consider the plank. The writer speaks here, talking about the Lord and speaking about this fault-finding spirit. 
a readiness to blame others for trifling offenses or matters of indifference, a habit of passing rash and hasty judgments, a disposition to magnify the errors and infirmities of our neighbors and make the worst of them. He says it was common among the Pharisees. It's always been common from their day to the present. We must all watch against it. I believe that's true. You look at Matthew 7, verse 4. He says, or how can you say to your brother? Verse 4, verse 3 was a look. Verse 4 poses the question of how you can say, speak. How is it that you can open your mouth to be the one to remove the speck from your brother's eye? You know, the way Jesus presents this is almost humorous. I say almost because the subject matter is far from humorous. It's truly not funny to operate in the way he's describing. The condition Jesus speaks of is addressed in the first word of verse 5. Hypocrite. That's the first word. What's a hypocrite? Hypocrite is someone who acts the part, right? Someone who dons the mask. The origin in this word is oftentimes traced to the theater where masks were used to play the part. The same person might play different parts. A changing of the masks was all that was necessary. A hypocrite is often described as someone who says one thing but practices another himself, right? He's lacking in character, not someone that you can trust. A hypocrite understands the plank is present, but is excellent at the game of self-deception. He's a pretender. He puts forward the mask. He puts forward the mask that he wants other people to see. Depending on what he wants someone else to see, he just swaps out the mask and puts it on. He's content, harping at others about their speck, pointing out their sin, critically judging them whenever he has occasion. And yet he's a fake. He's a pretender. He's empty on the inside and has nothing better to do than to find his next victim or brother to correct. Church, we must be careful. On the heels of hypocrite, what does Jesus say? He says, first, remove the plank from your own eye. First, remove the plank from your own eye. I was reminded of a couple passages of Scripture here. 1 John, chapter 1, beginning verse 5. This is the message which we have heard from him and declare to you that God is light and in him there is no darkness. If we say that we have fellowship with him and walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. But if we walk in the light as he is in the light, we have fellowship with one another. And the blood of Jesus Christ, his son, cleanses us from all sin. If we say that we have no sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. If we confess our sins, he is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Church, that's good news. Verse 9, key verse, if we confess our sins, 
He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Parallel passage in the Proverbs. In Proverbs chapter 28, verse 13. He who covers his sins will not prosper, but whoever confesses and forsakes them will have mercy. How do you remove the plank from your eye? He says, first, remove the plank from your eye. How do you do that? Might be good for starters to ask him for wisdom. Ask him for understanding. If any of you lacks wisdom, the Bible says in James chapter 1, verse 5, let him ask of God, who gives liberally all, to all without finding reproach, and it will be given to him. Or how about seek him in his word? Psalm 119, verse 130, the entrance of your words gives what? Light. It gives understanding to the simple. How about a desire? You want to know how to remove the plank from your eye? Do you have a desire for holiness, a desire for purity in your life? 1 John 3, 3 says, everyone who has this hope, this hope of, of Christ coming back, right? Right now we don't see him as he is, but there's going to be a day when we'll see him as he is. And verse 3 says, everyone who has this hope in him purifies himself just as he is pure. That that's what we're about while we're still here. 1 Peter chapter 1, 13 through 16 says to be sober, be vigilant, right? Gird up your loins. Be holy. Why? Because I am holy, says the Lord God. Well, what about Psalm 139? 23 and 24 just begins this way. Search me, O God. You want to know how to remove the plank from your eye? Search me, O God. See if there is any wicked way in me. I stand before, you're standing before the Lord. Search me, O God. Test my thoughts. See if there's any wicked way in me. First, remove the plank from your own eye. You see, there is a matter here in the text. Jesus says is of first importance. First, remove the plank from your own eye. For what purpose? And then you will see clearly. And then you will see clearly to remove the speck from your brother's eye. Hard to see clearly, isn't it, when you have that plank lodged in your own eye? Anyone in the Bible have a plank lodged in his eye? Any examples of this? I believe one of the best examples of this, there are perhaps others, but I believe that one of the best examples we would find would be in 2 Samuel chapter 12. 2 Samuel chapter 12. As you're going there, just a little context of David and Bathsheba in 2 Samuel chapter 11. Chapter 12, the Lord sent Nathan the prophet to David. And he came to him and said, there were two men in one city. He just starts in. Starts in with the story, with the parable. Two men in one city, one rich and the other poor. The rich man had exceedingly many flocks and herds, but the poor man had nothing except one little ewe lamb, which he had brought, bought and nourished. And it grew up together with him and with his children, and it ate of his own food and drank from his own cup and lay in his bosom, and it was like a daughter to him. And a traveler came to the rich man, who refused to take from his own flock and from his own herd to prepare one for the wayfaring man who had come to him. But he took the poor man's lamb and prepared it for the man who had come to him. So David's anger 
the text says, verse 5, was greatly aroused against the man. And he said to Nathan, as the Lord lives, the man who has done this shall surely die. And he shall restore fourfold for the lamb because he did this thing and because he had no pity. Then Nathan said to David, verse 7, you are the man. You are the man. Thus says the Lord God of Israel, I anointed you king over Israel, and I delivered you from the hand of Saul. I gave you your master's house and your master's wives into your keeping, gave you the house of Israel and Judah, and if that had been too little, I also would have given you much more. Why have you despised the commandment of the Lord to do evil in his sight? You've killed Uriah the Hittite with the sword. You've taken his wife to be your wife, have killed him with the sword of the people of Ammon. Now therefore... The sword shall never depart from your house because you have despised me and have taken the wife of Uriah the Hittite to be your wife. Thus says the Lord, Behold, I will raise up adversity against you from your own house and I will take your wives before your eyes and give them to your neighbor and he shall lie with your wives in the sight of this son for you did it secretly. But I will do this thing before all Israel, before the son. So David said to Nathan, Listen carefully. I have sinned against the Lord. Reminds me of that Psalm 51. Against you and you only have I sinned. And Nathan said to David, the Lord also has put away your sin. The principle here, again, if we confess our sins... He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. Nathan says to David, the Lord has put away your sin. However, verse 14 speaks to the ramifications of our sin. You see, we confess our sins, but nevertheless, our sins always have ramifications, do they not? That church is a wonderful example of what the text here is speaking to in Matthew chapter 7. Verses 1 and 2 speak to not judging or condemning another brother. There's a warning submitted not to do this. Jesus himself, the righteous judge, stands before, behind, among, the warning. It's a warning each of us would do well to heed. And then in verses 3, 4, and 5, he speaks to how to address these specks in your brother's eye. It gives priority consideration to the plank lodged in your own eye. Get that removed first that you might see clearly to remove the speck from your brother. Holy living, attention to the prayer closet, seeking him in the pages of scripture. Remove the plank. Be willing to present yourself before God saying, search me, O God. So how does it conclude? Look at verse 6. Do not give what is holy to the dogs nor cast your pearls before swine lest they trample them under their feet and turn and tear you to pieces. I don't know about you. I've always wrestled with this verse. Anybody else wrestle with this verse? I've always like, you know what? As I've read this verse, I've always looked at it and like, it doesn't seem to fit with what comes before. It doesn't seem to fit with what comes after. You know, talking about dogs and pigs, it's, this is odd. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. 
the imagery of dogs and swine. Conjures up a picture. It's not pretty. Wild dogs, swine, obviously weren't highly thought of among the Jewish people. These things that were viewed as negatives, as it was viewed in a very negative light. Do not give what is holy to the dogs, nor cast your pearls before swine. Church, it's important for us to understand. We have been entrusted in these vessels of clay with a precious treasure, have we not? Paul writes about that, Corinthians. We have this treasure in jars of clay. Just as there is warning put forward about not judging, just as there is a word here about how to go about that judging with our brothers. There's also a word spoken here, I believe, about discernment, about when to speak, when to share, perhaps when not to share. See, I believe all of us in this room would say, you know what, there's, there's no one that I ought not share the gospel of Jesus Christ with. You know what, we're called to share that gospel. Matthew 28, make disciples of all the nations. But church, I do believe there is some discernment being put forth here, teaching by Jesus about how, about when, about understanding the precious treasure, those things that are holy, those pearls of whom we have the pearl in Matthew 13, that pearl of great price, Christ himself. A warning's put forth. The writer said it's a warning against mistaken zeal and trying to make converts or to correct men's faults. We must not judge, verses 1 through 5, but we must deal with men according to their character. We may connect this verse, verse 6, with verse 5 and learn that in undertaking to correct men's faults, we must exercise discretion lest we do more harm than good. What are you talking about? Well, biblically speaking, in, in Proverbs chapter 9, verses 7, 8, and 9, it says, he who corrects a scoffer gets shame for himself. And he who rebukes a wicked man only harms himself. Do not correct a scoffer lest he hate you. Rebuke a wise man and he will love you. Give instruction to a wise man and he will be still wiser. Teach a just man, and he will increase in learning. You know, there are some scriptural examples here, I believe, of Matthew 7, verse 6. And thinking about in Acts 18, 5 and 6. Silas and Timothy had come from Macedonia and Paul was compelled by the Spirit and testified to the Jews that Jesus is the Christ. But when they opposed him and blasphemed... He shook his garments and said to them, Your blood be upon your own heads. I'm clean. From now on, I will go to the Gentiles. Paul didn't stick around. He left. What about Titus 3? 
10 and 11. This instruction Paul has given to Titus on the island of Crete, reject the divisive man after the first and second admonition, knowing that such a person is warped and sinning, being self-condemned. What about Acts 13? You see the context there, the discriminating against the Jews, discriminating in light of their envy. The text says in Acts 13, 45, in light of their envy, contradicting and blaspheming, they opposed the things spoken by Paul in Acts 13. And then Paul and, and Barnabas, they grew bold. And the text says, it was necessary that the word of God should be spoken to you first. But since you reject it, and judge yourselves unworthy of everlasting life. Behold, we turn to the Gentiles. Verse 46. Church, it's important that we adhere to what Jesus is saying. Is he saying that we're not to pray any longer for those who don't know Jesus Christ? No. Pray for him. Pray for him. Because we know this. We do know that he's given to us a responsibility, no doubt, to put forth his word. We also know from the parable of the soils, the sower, there are many ways that the word of God gets choked. Amen? A lot of ways. Sometimes that, 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 that seed falls on hard path. I believe as the Lord leads and as the Lord directs and as the Lord guides, He gives discernment on the ones that we need to be sharing these holy things, the one that we need to be casting our pearls before, the one that we need to be speaking to. Pray for all men who are lost and without Christ. But in terms of our time, the time that we have here, I do believe He's pointing out some directive here. To use discretion. Use discretion. The proverb writer, I believe, said it well in Proverbs chapter 9. Have we thought about these things? Have we considered the words of our Lord here? I'd like to conclude by picking up at the end of a passage that I read earlier in 1 John. First John, at the end of First John, chapter 1, we saw that if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins, to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. If we say that we have not sinned, we make him a liar and his word is not in us. And then we get to chapter 2, 1 and 2. My little children, these things I write to you so that you may not sin. And if anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. If anyone sins, we have an advocate with the Father. Jesus Christ, the righteous. And he himself is the propitiation for our sins. Not for ours only, but also for the whole world. 
church, as you think about what Jesus is teaching in Matthew 7, 1 through 6, I want you to consider 1 John chapter 2, 1 and 2. As we think about body life, how we do church according to what the Word has put forth, how we function together, how we operate together. Let's be reminded that if anyone sins, those of us in Christ, contextually is what I'm speaking to, let's be reminded that we have an advocate with the Father, Jesus Christ. Let's be reminded that he himself has paid for, has atoned for completely our sins. So that becomes very important as we think about, as we consider saying, brother, let me remove the speck from your eye. First, remove the plank from your eye. Church, what we're dealing with here, what we're talking about here, I believe, in many ways, is sin. How we handle it, how we address it. In light of what God has done for us, to us, through Jesus Christ. We ought to then relate to one another much differently. Those of us in Christ. There must be a different way we relate to one another in light of what God has done. If God has forgiven you of so much. Isn't that the Ephesians 4.32 principle? Just as God forgave us in Christ, so we ought to be forgiving one another. Let love cover a multitude of sins. We're saying not speak about it, no, speak about it. But let's be sure that in speaking about it to a brother or to a sister, that we first remove the plank from our eye, ask of God to remove that plank. That we then address truth in love, we address with our brothers, with our sisters, these things that need to be addressed but let's remember to put on a right attitude as we address these things with one another. Address them in love. Address them with care and concern for the other parts of the body. Are you edifying in the words that you speak to your brother and sister? Let's be about that, church. Let's be about taking these very difficult words. They are difficult. But let's ask of him to help us navigate through the difficult words, through the difficulties that it presents in our own lives and in the body, life here at Hope in Christ. And may God be pleased. May God be pleased. Let's, let's end where we finished. The fear of the Lord. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom. It's the beginning of knowledge. It overrides all of our affairs. Who God is. And let's take heed to the warning that's been put forth this morning, understanding who it is that's overseeing the warning. It's our great God, Savior. And I'm grateful for that, and I pray that you are too this morning. Would you join me in a word of prayer? Father, I'm grateful that We can know what love is because you, through your son Jesus Christ, laid down your life for us. 
The word calls us also to lay down our lives for the brethren. Father, I pray that you would grant to us wisdom. I'm asking that you would grant to us wisdom as a church. That we might know how to navigate through these verses that we're speaking of this morning. Oh Lord, they're difficult. But Father, you've put them forward. On our end as we read them. They're meant to be obeyed. They're meant to be followed out, carried out in our lives. May we endeavor to navigate through these instructions given to us in verses 1 through 6. With a dependence upon your Holy Spirit to help us do this well. I'm asking this morning, Lord, that you would just... Speak to each one of us and and perhaps ask the question, what is the plank in our eye that we need to remove? But you might perhaps ask us, Lord, inquire of us how we are dealing with our brothers and sisters. In what manner are we speaking to our brothers and sisters? What is the spirit? What is the motive behind our speaking? Oh, Lord, I pray that you would help us to to see these things. Open our eyes. Lord, you you are the one who does that. And so we're asking this morning that you would completely open our eyes, pull back the veil that we might be able to see clearly. And in seeing clearly, then, we might be helpful, most helpful to those parts in the body. May we not get so busy, Lord, that we miss these instructions in your word. We thank you so much, Father, for your word. Thank you for the life that it gives to us, the life that it breathes into us. May we walk diligently with you in the days ahead. Oh, Lord, thank you for this word. We thank you for your wonderful words of life. And I pray this in the name of Jesus. Amen.